Hello and welcome to Parkinson's Pathway Pals Tuesdays with Teresa. I'm Teresa Jackson, your podcast host. Today, my guest is Dr. Osme. Dr. Osme is the director of the Division of Functional and Restorative Neurosurgery at Hackensack University Medical Center. His goal has been to develop a program that delivers a very comprehensive approach to the care of patients with Parkinson's disease. From promoting engagement in health and wellness to offering the most current medication therapies to making available surgical options such as deep brain stimulation and beyond. The program strives to ensure the best quality of life possible for each patient. Recognizing the particular vulnerability of patients with Parkinson's disease, Dr. Osme has spent the last 10 years helping to develop initiative hospital-wide protocols and programs to improve the care of patients with Parkinson's disease who have been admitted to the hospital. He leads a team at HUMC whose efforts have culminated in becoming the first hospital in the nation to receive disease-specific certification in Parkinson's disease from the Joint Commission for Accreditation of Hospitals in June of 2018. Dr. Osme has authored and co-authored several articles in scientific journals and has been an invited speaker nationally and internationally. Co-authored book entitled Parkinson's Disease for the Hospitalist was released in October of 2018. Welcome, Dr. Osme. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. This is such an important subject. Um, I want to talk a little bit about DBS today or deep brain surgery, but before we get into that, I'd really like to talk about the entry point in the care of patients that are entering the hospital that are living with Parkinson's. Um, I know from all the reading I've done and that, I, and because I'm a, an aware and care ambassador for the Parkinson's Foundation that patients sometimes in hospitals are not always set up. Even centers of excellence aren't set up to take as good a care as they probably could because of certain systems that aren't set up within the hospital. So could you could you go ahead and just open us up with that and, and talk a little bit about that? No, absolutely. I think uh, it's a very important subject, Teresa, and I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, I think, as you said, hospitals uh, currently are not truly set up um, to take care of patients with Parkinson's disease. And there's many factors that go into it. The most important factor is most patients with Parkinson's disease enter the hospital for non-Parkinson's related issues. So almost 85% of patients going for what all of us going for, you know, back pain, abdominal pain, elective surgeries, uh, and the diagnosis of Parkinson's is kind of lost in the shuffle. Uh, so that's really the primary uh, reason. Uh, in addition, um, most practitioners, that, and that includes doctors and even many neurologists are not, especially if they're not tre- uh, trained in, in movement disorders, um, are not aware of how important it is to, to maintain uh, a, uh, the regimen that patients take at home, maintain the home schedule. Uh, so when a patient comes into the hospital, not complaining of Parkinson's, but let's say comes in for abdominal pain and they happen to have Parkinson's, those two issues end up uh, making uh, a, a lot of errors in their medication. We don't order it properly. If they're ordered, they're not delivered to the patient properly. And as you know, 
Um, even a 15 minute delay in getting Parkinson's medications could be very, very difficult for patients and getting contraindicated medications. Many medicines that we use normally around time of surgery um, are, are, are not good for patients with Parkinson's. And, and if we don't have uh, safe systems to, to uh, counter that, it, it happens unfortunately a lot that patients get these medications. And uh, the data shows when that happens, there's complications for patients. Uh, they have falls, they have confusion, swallowing trouble, um, and they end up staying in the hospital much longer than they were supposed to uh, and affects their overall care. So it, it is a really, really crucial um, issue. Uh, and I'm so glad that you, you uh, as an ambassador, that you, you, you brought this up because we, there's nothing more important than uh, us being advocates for, for ourselves. So uh, when patients with Parkinson's are going to the hospital, they really need to, to make sure that they bring with them as much information as possible about Parkinson's, about the medications that they take. This way, there's no confusion uh, on uh, when they're getting admitted. The nurses know they have Parkinson's and um, the Parkinson's Foundation makes a great kit called the Aware and Care Kit. Um, and yeah, you, you, you're an expert in that. So I, you, you could certainly talk about it much better than I can, but it really allows the patients to um, put down the medicines exactly when they take it uh, and even bring the medicine to the hospital with them. So um, I, I encourage all patients uh, uh, that happen to have Parkinson's disease that are going to, to have surgeries, elective surgeries, they need to be hospitalized for, for the, for, to reach out and get one of those. They're actually offered free through the Parkinson's Foundation. Um, and so it, it's really a crucial issue. Yeah, you know, when you're, when you're talking, my brain is going a million miles a minute and I have a lot of different thoughts. Um, one thing, you know, with the, there's some great education that's provided by the Far Parkin Parkinson's Foundation um, for education for nurses. And I think that that's important. And I think it's important to have it in your aware and care kit. But I also think it's so important to have education provided to those nurses before the patient gets on the floor. So, um, you know, in any standard hospital, they have all kinds of education where people come in and provide those updates on for that kind of information. And I don't know that that's happening across the United States consistently. And I think that's an entry point that causes problems. The other thing that comes up to mind is that when someone comes in for something that's a non-elective, so they come in for an emergency and appendicitis, pneumonia, whatever it is, and they come through the emergency room, if it's not set up already, already in the EPIC system or their electronic medical system, the neurologist or movement disorder specialist may not be called, even if the Parkinson's patient is advocating for themselves. So the systems that um, I'm sure you're more than familiar with and have advocated for are um, you know, just really, really important to get into place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, um, very, very important. I think as, as uh, uh, the uh, medical community behooves us, uh, to ensure that uh, these safety gaps are, are addressed. And there truly are safety gaps. You know, patients come to the hospital assuming that they will be well cared for, you know, and it, rightly assuming, you know, you're going to the hospital. Who, know, who better knows about how to take care of patients than people in a hospital? But yet 
there are certain things that um, there, there are, you know, holes, there are holes in our education, there's, there's these gaps in our, in our care, and uh, we do have to educate uh, nurses and, and doctors, and we have to use the technology that we have to better address these issues. So um, what we have done uh, in, in, in our uh, neck of the woods is we've tried to harness the uh, electronic medical system uh, to be able to um, address these issues as best as we can. For example, we are asking all the nurses in the pharmacy that when they see a, a, a medication that's a Parkinson's medication, uh, it, they make sure it's ordered in a timed fashion. So what does that mean? When, when I go to order uh, any medicine, the electronic system pops up instructions. For example, I order Tylenol and the instructions come up five times a day, three times a day. And unfortunately, this also comes up with Cinemet, for example, medications that we use for Parkinson's disease. And as you know, uh, uh, people with Parkinson's, especially if the Parkinson's is more advanced, don't take it three times a day. They take it on exact timing that their doctor, neurologist told them to take. Uh, and if this is not reflected in the hospital, uh, it, it totally screws up their, uh, their um, um, medication. So we're asking the nurses after we're building uh, mechanisms in the electronic health record where any of these medicines are not put in as three times a day or five times a day. They're actually forced to ask patients, okay, what time do you take it? And, and then reflect that uh, in the order. So that's really critical. And of course, education, it, it needs to be almost continuous because uh, nurses come in and go, nurses, uh, um, there's different shifts, uh, there's div, you know, physical therapists, nurse assistants. So it, the education component of any of these programs need to be, needs to be pretty robust and pretty strong. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to do it. I mean, there, there is no alternative. We have to make sure we take care of patients better. I, um, I, I hear you so loud and clear and being that, you know, someone that's living with Parkinson's myself, even though I'm doing quite well now, but I know as I progress, eventually these things will become more prevalent for me as well. But I think of um, like the diabetic, we would never hold the insulin for a diabetic patient and it should be treated equally as important because for the Parkinson's patient, um, you know, they miss their medication and now they're supposed to go to physical therapy and it's just not going to happen. And it's not um, people being, um, you know, not wanting to do that. It's they physically yeah. cannot do that. Absolutely. And um, sometimes people don't understand that. There's so much education that needs to be done. When I was first diagnosed and was um, having some blood work drawn and I had said something to the, the lady was asking me uh, about Parkinson's and I said, well, I have early onset. And she said, you're so lucky they caught it early. So clearly, you know, just the understanding that catching it early is not early onset. You know, there's just education everywhere, I think with Parkinson's that needs to be done. And I think that a lot of people might be surprised. And I've spoken to a number of physicians that have shared with me the, the hours of Parkinson's education in their medical school. If you don't go on to be a neurologist or a movement disorder specialist or um, someone else that really takes care of Parkinson's patients, the, the hours is about a day or two. It's really pretty minimal. Um, I don't know if you can confirm that, but that's what other physicians have shared with me. It's really pretty minimal. 
No, I mean, you're, you're, it's unfortunately the, the a nature of, of how, uh, of where we are in medicine. We are more and more specialized. Mm-hmm. Medicine's advanced. It's very difficult to know about every medicine that's out there. You really need to specialize. So unless you are um, specialized in a particular field, whatever it is, cardiology or in neurology, even in, in each field, for example, neurology, there's different types of neurology. Right. neurologists that take care of just stroke patients, neurologists that take, take, take care of multiple sclerosis patients, and then neurologists that take care of Parkinson's patients or, or movement disorder patients. Mm-hmm. So, so unless you really have dedicated a, a big um, portion of time uh, for, for Parkinson's disease is about a three to four year residency for neurology, and then a at least a one year, if not two year, um, uh, uh, it's called yeah, a yeah. fellowship mm-hmm. in, in movement disorders. So then you really get to know the, all the different aspects of care for these patients. Um, so, so you're absolutely correct. I think um, our, our, because of the advances in medicine, um, we all know about our little world. We know it very well, but it, it happens to, to limit our ability to know about other fields. And I think because of that, it, it makes it so much more critical that patients are advocating for themselves and that hospitals understand how critical this issue is for people living with Parkinson's as they enter their systems. Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm going to transition us here in just a minute to DBS, but before I do, is there anything else that people that are listening, whether it's uh, someone living with Parkinson's or perhaps someone that's uh, their care partner, is there anything else that should be brought up and talked about or discussed in regards to hospitalizations? I think I would like to, in general, uh, talk about the importance of reaching out to to a uh, specialist in in movement disorders. If someone has Parkinson's disease, um, they should really try to reach out to to a a movement disorder trained doctor. Um, Now, whether that's once a year or twice a year, um, I think it depends on how, how they're doing with Parkinson's, but it's really important to do that. And thankfully we have a lot of um, excellent centers that most people have access to. And you know what, now we have, it's the age of Zoom. So there's even yeah. more access, uh, although it's not okay. as, as great to uh, as seeing the patient in person or meeting the doctor in person, but it's certainly a, 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 an alternative to, to uh, not seeing someone. So I think that that's a very important fact. Uh, and being advocates for ourselves is, is crucial. In the hospital, we have to, to tell the, the doctors and the nurses, I, you know, I have Parkinson's, this is how I take my medicine. And if they think that something's not being done right, don't just assume that the doctors and the nurses know what better. Uh, we have to tell them, you know, listen, this is not how I take it, you know, at home. This is a different way. And, and it's really important to do that. Yeah. People need to speak up. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've actually participated in a lot of speaking across the state that I live in about um, Parkinson's and, you know, trying to educate that we do need to advocate for ourselves and how important it is. So there is a lot of, um, I think, questions around, or at least when I speak to people, questions around deep brain stimulation. 
And one of those questions are, um, when is the best time to consider this? I think initially when it came out, if I'm understanding correctly, um, the thought was to wait until the medicines are all you've depleted really and your quality of life has really taken a nosedive. And then it's time to explore that. Some things that I've read most recently is maybe we should be looking at that a little sooner or even a lot sooner. I don't know. But if you would share with us, um, when's the best time to consider DBS? Sure. So, I mean, if, if, if you don't mind, uh, let, let me just preface it by saying that, you know, DBS is not for every patient. Not every patient will need DBS. It's just another tool that we have to be able to help improve the quality of life of someone with Parkinson's disease or Parkinson's uh, presently, but it is a very good therapy um, for a, the correct patient. So um, who is a good candidate? I think that's, that's a broader question that you were mm -hmm. asking. Who's a good candidate for the surgery? So uh, we, we definitely would like to have someone that is medication responsive. You know, there's different types of Parkinsonisms. Some of them uh, respond to, to medication, some, some do not. And DBS really is only helpful for Parkinson's disease in patients that have a good response to medication. So we definitely want to, to see that. Also, because it's surgery and it carries some risks, we certainly don't want to think about it for a patient that takes, is taking three pills a day and is doing well. I mean, that just does not a reasonable. Uh, so we start to think about it when patients are taking more and more medication. Uh, oops, my light went out. Sorry. That's um, okay. So when patients are taking um, more and more medication, uh, and they may start to develop some side effects to the medication, um, including what's called dyskinesias, which is the uh, um, uh, abnormal um, and uncontrollable movements that, that people can have, as well as what's called motor fluctuations, where their medicine works and then it doesn't work, and it works and it doesn't work, and they go through the day with these ups and downs between the, the doses. So this is when we start to think about uh, surgery for, for patients. And some patients uh, reach that in five years. Some patients may reach that in 10 years. There's really no uh, um, exact timing. What I would say, though, is we try not to do the surgery very early uh, because sometimes uh, some of these other Parkinsonisms may mimic Parkinson's disease. Uh, and we may erroneously do uh, uh, offer this surgery to someone that may not get benefit from it. So uh, that's why people would, uh, the centers would like to wait at least three years, um, uh, if not longer, to, to make sure that this is a medication responsive uh, Parkinson's uh, to proceed with it. And, and if, if you um, are a, a getting care at a center uh, that has a experienced movement disorder neurologist and an experienced movement disorder neurosurgeon, uh, the, these are the issues that, uh, that are taken into consideration prior to proceeding with surgery. What are some of the other um, Parkinsons that, that may in fact mimic? You said they want to wait three years to make sure something else doesn't. Um, there are other, there's other disorders uh, that, that have symptoms similar to Parkinson's, but they 
they behave a little bit differently and they have different progression uh, than Parkinson's disease. Uh, for, for example, uh, uh, Lewy body disease or Lewy body dementia, uh, um, that, that is, may have some uh, similarities to Parkinson's disease, especially in the beginning, but later on, after a few years, it's, it's different. Uh, multiple sy system atrophy, the MSA it's called, um, uh, progressive uh, 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 supranuclear palsy is another um, uh, condition. So these can mimic Parkinson's disease early on, but they do have different trajectories uh, and different symptomatology later on. And so those usually show up within three years, generally speaking, of a, of a new diagnosis of Parkinson's. Okay. All right. Um, so if someone is considering DBS and they have been deemed as they are a, a patient that would benefit from DBS, talk a little bit about what some of the risks are. Sure. So it, it, is, um, it is brain surgery it is that we need to consider uh, particularly um, as we decide whether it is a good option for a patient uh, to, to proceed. So when you think back to patients that you've been involved in their care that ended up having uh, deep brain stimulation surgery, um, what are the things that someone might expect as what they might consider a success story? Sure. I think it's important to, to know, and that's a, that's a good segue into what does DBS do? You know, what symptoms does it uh, help? Um, and it, it doesn't help all of the symptoms of Parkinson's. It helps uh, some of the motor symptoms. For example, it is very, very good for tremor control. It's very good for the bradykinesia or the slowness that occurs with Parkinson's. And it's very good for the rigidity that occurs with Parkinson's. Um, and our, our best gauge of how much better a patient will get after surgery is, is the effect of medicine. Where they are when the medicine's not working to when the medicine's working. And that difference is what the surgery can, can replicate. Um, uh, and it kind of gets rid of the up, ups and downs between the doses, makes the day more even. Uh, so, so that constellations of, of symptoms is what the surgery can help. So if a person is tremor, is tremor dominant, they'll likely will have very good results from the surgery. If the, if the patient has very good response for their rigidity and their, their bradykinesia, they also will have a, 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 a likely very good response uh, to the surgery. That's good information to know. And uh, certainly as people are listening, will help them have conversations with their own movement disorder specialist as they're thinking about you know, uh, preparing for that type of surgery and if they're a candidate. Um, is there anything else that is important for us to know, whether it's hospitalizations, maybe something we forgot to talk about or uh, deep brain surgery, or actually just anything that you would like to share with our listeners today? No, I think you, you, you brought up some excellent uh, questions. Um, I think the question of advocacy is, is very important. Um, and, uh, and I think the question of education of, of healthcare, not only healthcare uh, providers, but also patients, you know, patients and caregivers 
need to know what's available for them. What, what are the, the um, um, shortcomings of our healthcare system and what, how they need to advocate for themselves. And I think as far as education goes, our, our um, advocacy organizations, for example, the, the Parkinson's Foundation, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, um, uh, and the American Parkinson's Disease Association, and, and others as well, have done a great job of really um, changing how much we know about Parkinson's disease as a general population in the last 10 years. But we have a lot to go. We have a lot to go. We do. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing was because when I was diagnosed, I received zero education from the first two physicians that I saw. Basically, they said, here's here's a pill. See you in six months. And that was it. I'm sorry. And, yeah, it was unfortunate, but I have moved to a, a movement disorder specialist that I've been seeing for a good year and a half. I'm doing extremely well. Um, and he really caught me up on the education piece um, once I got to the right physician. And um, so that's really, it's why I've written a book. It's why I uh, do this podcast because we need to, while we've made great strides, we, we have a lot of room still for education and improvement. Um, I wanna thank you so much for coming on today. I also wanna ask the million dollar question that everyone wants to know and you may not be able to answer, but that is where are we with a cure? Oh, very, very good, uh, very good question. I, what I, I would say, closer than we were, you know, in the in in the last decade, there's no question, uh, especially with the um, efforts that uh, um, people have had to really bring the the issue of Parkinson's disease to the forefront. I mean, there 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 are organizations that are very very keen on trying to find the cure, and they're funding very very transformative um, um, research. So I, with the advances we've had in technology and in, in, in this, the science behind it, I, I really do think it's in our lifetime. There's some very, very um, interesting um, um, clinical trials that are ongoing as we speak, you know. Uh, so I, I don't think it's too far. Uh, we have some form of, of uh, a cure um, uh, or something close to it, I think, is in the horizon. I think for most patients, if you can stop the progression and if you had a medication that would uh, make your life normal, so to speak, for 24 hours, you know, every day you get up, you take your meds and you, you function pretty well. I think that um, most patients would be, at least if they've lived with it for a little while, um, would probably be pretty happy with that. And we all want to see a cure or even a preventative type situation, but um if we can get to a point where we can offer a, a procedure or a medication that stops the progression and helps people live a normal life, I think that'll be a win. Absolutely, absolutely. But at the, at the same, you know, we have to, to as you're doing, advocate that you, you can live well uh, with Parkinson's. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's just trying to get the information that's out there. And one, one of the important things, and, and certainly that's something uh, um, all movement disorder doctors advocate is, is activity. You know, there's physical activity, particularly physical activity, but also mental activity uh, is critically important in, in uh, 
you know, fighting back Parkinson's. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the really only thing that's been shown to slow down the diseases is exercise and physical activity. So it's, it's enormously important to do that. Yeah, um, I exercise way more now than I did before I developed and so uh, developed Parkinson's and so I'm probably actually in that regard uh, more fit than I was before, even though I was in, you know, I was fairly fit before. So, well, thank you again for today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time and all your knowledge that you've been so um, freely sharing with us. And um, I hope that maybe you'll come back again sometime. Love to. Thank you so much, Teresa. Thank you.